I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and you're listening to the True Philadelphia Podcast with Matt O'Donnell. Madeline Bell exhibits the grit of being a true Philadelphia, trained as a nurse. She started working at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia more than three decades ago. Today, she sits at the very top of the leadership chart at the same world-renowned, highly ranked, and still fast-growing hospital in University City. We talk empathy in nursing, women as leaders, confidence, and Madeline Bell's secret to getting through Mondays. From her office overlooking the hospital's helipad on the True Philadelphia podcast right now. Here with Madeline Bell, we're in her office high atop the administrative building at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And you tell me that sometimes a helicopter will go by and it's going to frighten me the first time I see it, right? Well, it may be no- noisy and it may frighten you, but I actually sit at my desk when, sometimes when I'm on conference calls or in meetings and I'll watch the helicopter fly by, lands on the helipad, and I see our security guards go out and escort the parent um, from the helicopter. And I always think to myself, what's the story? Mm-hmm. You know, what's happened to their baby or their child that brought them here via helicopter? And what are they going through as, they walking into, as they're walking into CHOP? That's not surprising because you have a fascinating backstory. You were a nurse at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia back in 1983, and then here you are running the whole thing. And my first reaction when I read that was, wow. (laughs) I mean, talk about climbing the ladder. Yeah, I always tell people that CHOP is a place of possibilities, whether it's at the bedside or career possibilities. And when people look at me skeptically, I say, look at me. I walked in here in 1983 I was a you know a staff nurse. I don't even think I understood what a president and CEO was. And did I know, you know, many years later that I would be running an organization with 16,000 employees and 60 locations and 3 billion dollars in revenue? It didn't even enter my thinking. I mentioned how, you know, the story you told about the helicopter it shows that you have a very human view with your job. Looking back in your time as a nurse, are there things that you still hold true about your personality and how you do your job on a daily basis? Well, to be a nurse, I think you have to have real empathy, empathy for the parents of the children and for the patients themselves. And I think it's actually a really important ingredient to what makes somebody a good leader. If I can understand what it's like to walk in the shoes of our frontline employees, people that are at the bedside or in the research labs, Um, And I can have empathy for what they need, want, feel, um, how to keep them connected to our overall mission and my vision for the future. Uh, I think that's really, really important uh, as a leader to be able to to put yourself in the shoes of of others. So you have your own podcast. So we're like podcast brothers and sisters in a way, right? podcast (laughs) colleagues, right? It's called Breaking Through. You also have a blog that you do periodically called Heels of Success. I want to talk to you about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it talks a lot about the issues women face in becoming leaders in a variety of industries, not just in uh, the health and services. The question I have for you is what were some of the biggest obstacles that you faced as a woman as you were climbing the corporate ladder here? 
Well, I really think that uh, I didn't see myself as facing obstacles, but sometimes people would remind me that I was different in the room. I remember one board meeting when a colleague said, oh, do you realize you're the only woman in the room? And I said, well, I do now because you pointed it out to me. Uh, and I do, you know, I did look around the table and see that uh, the top leadership was comprised of men. And I didn't let that stop me. In fact, I think that was a motivator for me to say, let me prove to myself that I can do this too. You point out that female representation on corporate boards in the Philadelphia area was only 17% in 2017, which is a low number. And then it only went up 1% from the year before. Why is that? Well, I think corporate corporations are looking for directors that have a broad base of experience. So it's sort of a chicken and egg. You know, they want somebody who's a CEO, but not many. there are not many women CEOs. I think if you're going to join a board, you want to be able to hold your own as a woman on a board. And if you've got the size, experience of size and scope of a place like CHOP or other organization that makes you more effective as a corporate director... Um, so if there are not many women CEOs or women in the C-suite, then you know it's a, it's a smaller pool to draw from. And so I, I always say to people, what we really need to do is focus on getting more women leaders and getting them connected to the right boards. Um, more like a feeding system exactly. where you're putting like them into the lower echelons. Exactly, like a farm team or whatever to, to get people prepared. So I think it's a you know it's a it's a it's a real struggle, and part of what I'm trying to do is for those women like me who are on corporate boards and who are CEOs. How can I help other women to get to where I am, maybe more quickly than the path I took? I'm just throwing this question at you because it sort of just came to mind. Are there advantages to being a woman and being in a role such as yourself in that you're underestimated? And that can be, in some regards, a favor. I actually think diversity of all sorts, including being a woman, brings just a different perspective. In some corporations, um, most of their consumers who are making decisions are women. And, uh, you know, having a woman's voice on a board just gives you a different perspective. When you think about the world of um, harassment, sexual harassment, having a woman on your board um, and, and having them understand and have empathy for what that might be like, um, I do, do think just brings a completely different perspective to the conversation. In the news business, the demographic that advertisers love the most are women. Mm-hmm. And it's because they tend to make the most decisions in the households. And so there's a, it's almost like a paradox in that, well, here in family life, the woman makes a lot of the decisions, but then when you go out in the corporate world, it's not the case. Yeah, and I think that um, we all need to have a better understanding of that. We, we also, in healthcare, we know that women mainly make decisions about healthcare for the family as well. And I think it, there needs to just be an acceptance and an understanding and embracing of the fact that, you know, if you're going after a certain consumer demographic, having that person represented in the C-suite and on the board um, will make your company more effective. I was going to ask you about politics and why, like certain countries, say, for instance, Great Britain, Germany, Estonia, another country, have had female heads of state, whereas the United States has not. And maybe it's you're going to give the same reason where you're not seeing them in the lower echelons as well. And maybe that is changing, particularly with Congress having so many women in it right now. Yeah, I actually think that this is a breakthrough moment as far as 
thinking about you know political leaders. If you have more women in Congress, you know people will see them as effective at um, making really good legislative decisions and leading their constituents. And I think that um, yeah, it's interesting that you know Britain, India, many of their countries have had um, Germany women leaders. Uh, but we haven't at, uh, in in, in uh, the United States, and maybe some of the sort of the old beliefs are held on to a little bit longer here. I, you know, I'm not really sure, but uh, we'll see how this plays out in the next uh, presidential election. Sure. You've heard talk, and I hate to pick on one individual, but Michael Avenatti was one person who said, "You know what? To beat President Trump, you cannot have a woman as the Democratic candidate." What would you say to someone who believes that? Well, I would hope that that would be untrue, um, and uh, it's unfortunate that people put that out there because sometimes, sometimes that puts the idea in somebody's head. I think that to you want it to have somebody that's electable, but somebody that that could you know the the people in the United States could see as leading them. And I actually think for for women, they have to own that themselves and say, I actually feel very comfortable that I could be president of the United States. And they have to convince themselves before you can convince other people. And there are going to be naysayers about any demographic of person. Sure. It's interesting, like, in our history, people have mentioned oh, President Kennedy was a certain religion and he couldn't have been elected. And so hopefully over time we'll, we'll evolve to the point where people don't see um, those as barriers. One of the blogs, I read a number of them, you have a really excellent blog. Uh, one of them was called Mentally Preparing to Be the Only Woman in the Room. You kind of mentioned that already. And in it, you mentioned the imposter syndrome, which if you don't know what that is, it's where someone in a very powerful position or a high-level position has this actual fear that they're not only a fraud, but people are on the verge of figuring that out and that it's, their cover is going to be blown. And Winston Churchill, I think, was one person who has, you know, talked about this. Is this something that you have at, at times? I've experienced it myself. I'll be, I'll be honest, I, I do have it all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I've experienced the imposter syndrome myself in the past, and that's what I think you have to mentally get yourself past that and own it and say, I deserve this, I belong here, I add value here. And you, it's, it's sort of a mantra that you have to have in your own head, sometimes even say out loud to yourself in order to get it across so that you, when you walk into a room, that you already own it and have that confidence. But you would not believe the number of women that I have interacted with who get a new job or get a promotion, and the first thing they say to me is, I'm not sure I deserve this, or I think this man probably was more qualified than me. And there are not that many men. Most men will be like, I got this. I deserve it. <laughs> you know, it's a confidence. Sure. And, and I think that's sometimes, um, in my experience, the women I've interacted with, I, I've, they don't lead with that confidence, that self-confidence. I want to ask you a semi-personal question, not like super personal. Okay. How much sleep do you get? Well, I need more sleep. <laughs> I would say if I think I get about five and a half to six hours. That's of sleep. not a lot. Yeah, I um, I wake up and I think about work, uh, and I've actually I'm in the pursuit of figuring out what's the right formula for me. How do I 
get myself to sleep more. And it's not because I don't want to. I think it's really, really important for recharging. I think what happens for me is all week long I go, 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 and then on Friday night I hit the wall. Bam. And I want to be in bed by like 8 o'clock on Friday night. And if I have a, if I have a you know, top fundraising event, I really have to pull myself together in order to do that on a Friday. Um, but I do think that when I exercise a lot, it helps me sleep better. And so increasing my exercise hopefully will lead to more sleep and a healthier me. How do you get through Mondays? I mean, this is a question I could ask anyone, but how do you get through Mondays? Are they tough? I mean, honestly, they are very tough for me because my schedule, it's very early. Yeah. Monday, uh, Sunday's the shortest day for me. Friday's the longest day. I'm, I feel like I'm a business traveler in Germany. <laughs> well, one of the things I've been trying to do is not to start my Monday on Sunday and to work on Friday afternoon to try to get myself really prepared for the next week. And I've been... This has been sort of a New Year's resolution for me to try to um, not spend time. Because I would, I would wake up on Sunday morning and be like, oh, gosh, I'm going to be spending all day Sunday preparing for Monday and for my week ahead. So I've been trying this thing where I've been blocking out some time on Friday afternoons to really look ahead and try to prepare for the next week. So maybe I can under, you know, uh, enjoy a little bit more time on Sunday and make that a little bit more relaxing. I always say to people in any circumstance. If you look at the big picture, it can be overwhelming. So sometimes when I'm a Monday morning, I don't look at my whole week because then I think to myself, wow, it's pretty overwhelming. How am I going to get through that? So maybe I just say, let me just look at what I need to do on Monday. A friend of mine used to tell me, don't let your Mondays ruin your Sundays. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. And I said, don't start your Mondays on Sundays. And so I think it's that whole idea is what can you do to help prepare yourself for the following week? Let's talk about shop. It has grown immensely. I remember coming here really only 20 years ago and it was a building and now it is a megalopolis. Um, it was, uh, I mean, it's almost a city unto itself here in University City. Looking over its history, what has really provoked such a huge amount of growth for this institution? Well, for us, it's really been the fact that we attract children from all over the world to come here. Um, from all over the country, all over the world. At any given time, we could have 150 to 200 families in Philadelphia seeking care here at our hospital. And it's the demand that we're getting because of our investment in research and discoveries and all of the breakthroughs that come from our research institute. It positions us uniquely, so people travel from all over. And as we continue to create more discoveries it leads to more patients. And so that leads to more buildings and more staff, and it's, you know, just continues to, con- to grow. It's a snowball effect, quite simply. It right? is, it is. And I always say to people, we're investing in research because we're trying to put ourselves out of business. So we're trying to cure um, and create treatments for childhood diseases. And so as we're taking care of patients as quickly as we can, we're working on discoveries Um, for childhood diseases, for cures and treatments of childhood diseases. Do you hope perhaps in our lifetimes children won't get cancer anymore? Or is that being a bit too, asking a bit too much? I think we will, in our lifetimes, um, discover the genetic causes and predispositions to cancer. And I think we'll have more and more effective treatments like we are here with cancer immunotherapy, cell uh, immunotherapy for cancer. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest breakthroughs 
in history and uh, as I see how quickly things occur, I think it's very, very likely that we will see much, much more effective cancers. When I think back, when I was a nurse, 10% of the children who had relapsed leukemia survived, and now that's 90-some percent. That's a really big transformation in, in decades, and because we're moving so quickly, I think we can think of you know, a decade or half a decade for the next you know, real breakthroughs. So maybe not so much finding a cure, but finding ways for someone to deal with having cancer and being able to live a happy life still? Better treatments and, and maybe cures for some cancers, not all. And I think um, discovery of genetically linked diseases will um, happen at a much faster clip in the future. Will there ever be a day where you walk into a hospital and all the treatments that you would be able to receive are listed on a menu with prices? Actually, that day is pretty much here because the government requires all of us um, to have transparency on pricing. Um, Because there are so many things that we do, when you go to a website of any hospital, it's difficult for a consumer to navigate. So we've actually created this um, uh, price transparency unit where when families um, are scheduling for procedures and um, coming to the hospital that we can give them some estimate of what they're going to uh, have to pay out of pocket. And I think that's really important to people because if you went on our website, I think it would be, for anybody, difficult to understand all the terminology and understand exactly what your child might need. So the menu is just so extensive that it would be difficult to pick what you want and or are going to have and what that would cost in advance. The criticisms people have about how the healthcare industry is set up is similar to how our education system is set up, whereas a lot of times the payer and the user are separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, with education, the availability of loans may have actually caused the, in, the inflation of you know, college costs, whereas in healthcare, you rely on a lot of healthy people to buy into certain plans so that you can treat the sick people. Is there, are there ways to form more of a bond between people paying and using? I think the most important thing that you can do is align the insurance system to be focused on um, reimbursing and funding preventative treatments to prevent people, you know, really investing up front, prevent people from getting sick. Is there no short-term reward for doing it that way? Yeah, especially for children because they're going to grow up and they're not going to be on their parents' insurance anymore. So, you know, I don't know what the average is, but the amount of time that people stay with an insurance company is, if you think about every time somebody changed employers, most likely. But as a child, it would be very unlikely the insurance that you have when you're, which would probably change multiple times when you're under your parents' um, care, would be different than the insurance in the future. And so there's not a sort of a long-term view when you think about it. But if you really step back and say, what ails our society? Or what ails the city of Philadelphia? You know, the city of Philadelphia is obese. Um, The city of Philadelphia doesn't have high literacy, has high violence. You know, if you sort of think about the city as a patient, there are a lot of things that we need to be doing differently to invest, particularly for children, to keep them, you know, going to school reducing violence, looking at other ways of managing their behavior, investing in their mental health, um, giving them access to healthy, good foods, 
but um, uh, the insurance and the reimbursement system isn't always aligned to do all of those things. I was going to ask you about childhood obesity. It's more than tripled since the 1970s, and you've listed some of the potential causes. And is that the problem where a lot of people are trying to figure out the one specific cause that has caused all our children to become so obese rather than seeing a variety of factors? I would say there's two major factors for those children who live in underserved neighborhoods um, having access to healthy food. One might think that a fast food that's high in calories and fat would give a child good nutrition, but they can be malnourished and obese at the same time. Um, so I think that's really important to understand. And the second is the lack of movement or exercise. And the more and more devices and social media that keeps, and video games and other things that keep children sedentary. Um, you know, when I think of when I, myself when I was little, my mom, we would have breakfast and then we would see her again at dinner time. And outside. we just played outside. Yeah, I did the same thing. Went on bike rides to parks that, you know, would never happen today. Uh, but we were active. And we rarely saw a child that was obese or, you know, would have a child in our neighborhood that was obese. And I think that um, the lack of movement and the lack of um, access to healthy foods. In fact, we actually just opened a first food pharmacy so physicians can give a prescription to the family if they assess them as being what we call food insecure. So not having access to good, healthy foods, give a prescription to a family and they can go fill it at our food pharmacy that's filled with food three days of healthy um, foods, and we're also trying to give families recipes and having cooking demonstrations. You know, it's hard for us to understand, but for many families, not only do they not have access, but they don't know what to do with it because it's not something that's been passed down generation to generation. What is your view on social media, how just about every child by the age of, I don't know, 12 ends up walking around with a device all the time looking into it? Well, I think it's unfortunate because they're missing actually a lot of the scenery and people interaction and people skills, the ability to communicate. Uh, I even think about talking to some of our young staff, and I asked somebody, what was preventing them from um, calling the scheduling center they have? And I realized that they don't feel comfortable picking up and making a phone call, and that was the obstacle. So if we could put something online that they could look at themselves and, and interact with um, that way. And so I, I think par partly that this is already moving and we can't stop it. And so we all have to adapt um, as leaders who may be of a different generation. But I also think there's a really big threat to lack of movement, but most importantly that deep human experience that comes with social interaction face-to-face. -face. And the problem is let's say you're a parent, you take the device away from the kid, everyone else has one. Yeah. And so it's this group think that's going on where it's really hard to be the only one who says, hey, well, you can't be on your phone all the time, you can't be on social media. Yeah, and I think that for parents and, you know, for my kids, it was more limiting television um, and, you know, computer time. Is this different? Way. Because they but said, oh, television is going to, you know, rot your brain. Is yeah. this different where it's worse for I, kids? I just think it's... I think that limiting time is important so that they do have to figure out ways to entertain themselves. Um, you know, when kids say they're bored and they can pick up their device and not be bored, you want them to pick to do something else and get themselves to sort of think creatively and get themselves out of boredom. And, you know, I, I just think that um, 
it may give them better coping skills in the future if they put their device down and parents limit that device interaction. No one's ever bored anymore. That's right. That's the thing. <laughs> Sometimes being bored is good. It's, it's really healthy to be bored, actually, because it pushes them to create a way to not be bored and to be creative and um, to find solutions for their boredom versus picking up a device and you could be not bored in a nanosecond with interacting with a device. So when are the robots coming and they're going to all like be doing what you have people doing in these buildings? I'm sure you're, you, there's a basement in one of these buildings where you're build, building the robots right now <laughs> to become the doctors of the 22nd century. Well, but biomedical devices actually are important and we actually do have a da Vinci robot where a physician can stand in one room um, and do surgery on a, on a child in another room and... Um, you know, has certain applications for microsurgery and, and different types of surgery. Um, and biomedical devices in general, I, I think, are an important part of our future. I did see that in, um, in Japan, they are delivering medications to the inpatient units that we have delivered by people through robots. So there might be some um, really good time savers for the frontline staff, but... Uh, Again, you know, people ask me about artificial intelligence, robotics. There's still part of that healing part of that um, healing process is to be able to interact human being to human being and understand the feelings that people have, uh, which is very much part of the healing process. Yeah, so AI, robots, I mean, these are things that you don't think necessarily are going to outright replace things, but are going to be complementary, right? Yeah, I would say augment. They, okay. will, ha they will augment in some way, but that touching of a patient, the healing nature of touch, the being able to see people and interact with them to understand what they might be feeling, those little nuances of human-to-human -human interaction, I think are really critical in medicine. We have not had a helicopter come by, and I'm almost disappointed. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so well, I wanted to see what it looked like flying yeah, by your window. It's very dramatic, actually. Um, what floor are we on, the 12th? We are on the thir 14th floor. Oh, there's no 13th floor. Yeah, there is, is a 13th oh, there floor. Is. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there is a, we're on the 14th floor, and there's the helipad here yeah. uh, right, right next to us. And like I said, you, you know, there's always a story behind having... When you know somebody has to be flown to your hospital, they have to be, uh, reach a certain threshold of illness, and it's scary sure. you know, for the parent, yeah. of course. Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, also the host of the Breaking Through podcast. Thank you for joining us on the True Philadelphia podcast. It was my pleasure. And by the way, today's a Monday, and we're doing pretty good. I think we're going to be upbeat and happy for the rest of the week. This week's starting off great. That's right. Thank you, Madeline. Thank you. Thanks to Madeline for her time. You can find her podcast by searching for Breaking Through and her blog by searching for Heels of Success. Music for the True Philadelphia podcast provided by Walkabouts and Cliff Hillis from Hacienda. Muchas gracias, Senor Cliff. Our executive producer is Caroline Hayden. I'm Matt O'Donnell. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to the podcast and show us some love. And feel free to check out our many other episodes featuring those who make us True Philadelphia.